what the f*** you thinking of? And I think it was put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway about the past, talking about the history, and talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not the other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie. microphone to start talking like an idiot and obviously it didn't take long for me to throw some gaffes your way which is obviously something that is very critical part of the past ball show and that's the you know the never know what you're going to expect attitude and angle that you get out uh pass ball and john pielli and you know running his own stuff here on the board and you know if you got a chance to listen to the show last thursday you saw was a big step because uh you know i was able to record pretty much using my all my own equipment Obviously, had a little bit of gaffes there, so we have a recorded version uh, up on the JohnPielli.com website, which we always uh, we always have. This is the one that's going to be available. Listen to this. I do got some things going on. We're going to try to reach out in a couple minutes with uh, former Major League outfielder Joey Gathright. Um, John was on my show this past week. Uh, we're going to try to reach out to him. Um, just going to pretty much get a confirmation, hopefully around three or so. So hopefully we'll be able to get him on, get him into the mix, and you know, listen, there's a ton of stuff that I want to go over, a ton of stuff that, you know, some over Thursday, some stuff that's going on now, and just a bunch of different things going on that uh, I want to hit up on. Um, I did a bit on JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty blog. I uh, was comparing the 1927 Yankees to the 1936 Yankees, and I do want to get into that in a little. So this is a little tease for that. So what we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to make the case how the 1936 Yankee offense was better than that Spurs row that un, you know, unbreakable team that was just so good. And listen, they were good. They were amongst one of the best offensive teams to ever play in the history of Major League Baseball. And I'm going to tell you how the 1936 team was better. Uh, getting to that in a little bit. And I'm going to, I'm going to try. We'll get right, right into things here as soon as I could uh, try to multitask here, which obviously if you, you, watch, uh, you, know, you watch me do my thing here, you know that I absolutely suck at multitasking. But listen. Some people are real good at it. Some people have strengths. I tell you all the time what my strengths and my weaknesses are. My strengths are I know baseball like no other. I uh, bring a very, very uh, solid program to the table as far as my content and everything in my shows. And then, you know, I, I, I interview my uh, players. I get into, you know, what's going on with them. And those, those are really the three strengths that I end up bringing into everything. So those are um, 
yeah, those are those are the weaknesses. Is yeah, I multitask like a friggin' idiot. So, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do that. But um, in a brief second or two, we're gonna reach out to Joey Gathbright. Uh, we'll see how he's doing. Uh, we'll get him right up on a program. And as long as I got his number in correctly, we are going to uh, to send this out. So we'll see how this goes. And uh, you know, we're gonna talk to uh, hopefully uh, former major league outfielder Joey Gathbright. And see how this goes, and we'll get into that in a little bit, and we'll break right into some other stuff going on in Major League Baseball right here on the Pass Ball. Hey, is this Joey? Yeah. Hey, how you doing, man? It's John Pielli, man. I talked to you earlier. Glad to uh, meet you for a couple minutes, my friend. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, listen, man. Uh, you know, we get into things, man. We realize, um, you know, do you have any more inclinations of playing in a game, or are you kind of moved on from that now? Well, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's all right, man. Now, uh, now, you know, recently, uh, you know, you haven't been in a major 2011. Um, is there anything you're working on now to try to get yourself ready, maybe in a, in a shape for this coming spring? Always working. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm always working out and getting it and all that stuff. I always have to stay in the shape just in case I get that phone call. I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm always working out. Yeah, no, yeah, no question, man. Now, you know, you can't, you obviously, you got a chance to play for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, the beginning part of your career. You know, you you ended up having ha, you know having some success. Yeah, you, you know, you had your your share of years where you're you know you were you're a fixture in the major leagues. Tell us about the beginning. You know, being drafted in the 2001 draft and your path to uh, to Tampa. Uh, I mean, football was probably my best sport. I just chose baseball because my mom thought it was less, and uh, I don't know, it was an easy way to get into what I thought would be an easy way to get into that. Now, did you think you, did you think the path was going to be that easy? Did you think that you know you just do a little time in the minors and you get yourself up there? I think the challenge was at some points overwhelming. Uh, at first, when I first started, I thought it was going to be the first spring training I ever had. I said that to, to a guy that's been playing for like two or three years, and be real quickly. But you know, in my mind, I just thought I would work hard enough to make it there quickly. I mean, I'm a 30 second round pick. I didn't know that that meant, you know, it would be harder for me. I just thought if I worked hard enough, I would make it there fast. And he, he put me in my place right away. He's like, yeah, that's how hard it is to get out. Like, I mean, he, he was in a ball for a few years, and he's like, well, you need to humble yourself and try to keep quiet and just, you know, work hard. If you make it fast, you make it, but I don't think you're going to make it fast. And I took that to heart, and I actually talked after that, and just worked, and it actually worked out for me. All right, now tell us, tell us your uh, your debut. You know, you end up coming up. You know, you come back. Your was it two thousand four? You end up getting up uh, with the with the, and you know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, your first experience in the major leagues, if it was ever going to be. It's way tougher than I thought it would be. I came up my first five games. The Marlins pitching staff, and we had Beckett, Montreal, and all those superstars. 
and that three, you know, like ninety-five plus. And I saw that, you know, in the minor leagues, but not on a consistent basis. And uh, I didn't get a hit until my fifth game in the major wow. leagues. I didn't strike out much, and said, "You know, guys are tough." Yeah, no question. Yeah, but yeah, those guys are tough. So it just it, that was a humbling experience. It made me realize that it's not the minor leagues that I had stuff. So obviously, that's why I came up fast, but. Facing those guys made you realize that you really have to work on your situation. Yeah, now, now as you as you come up, you hear all these stories about you know players coming up for the first time and uh, rookie hazing and stuff like that. Was there anything silly they had you, they had you do? Any weird kind of wear when you first came up with the with the Devil Rays? Yeah, um, I had two you know, friends when I came up with the Devil Rays. There's a lot of other guys, but those are main two. Albie Huff and Albie is just. But, um, yeah, they made me do everything. I had to stay on the bus. I had to wear a Hooters outfit in New York. Everybody wears their outfit even on every team because in New York you have to walk out to the bus and tell the fans from the locker room. So they see you on everything. And once you go on the bus, you have to sing in your costume. And then they make you go out that night whenever you go to the next city where you're on the road again. You have to go out wearing your costume. So, we all did it. You have to have fun. So, yeah. You're around all these superstar guys you look up to, and they're making you do this stuff. You're doing it out of love that night. There's no love because they show you no mercy. Nah, no question about it, man. Now, you know, as, as you move forward, you end up at Kansas City Royals, and obviously the video ends up surfacing of you jumping over that car. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that whole thing. The car, I mean, I, at the time, that was probably the hundredth time I've done another video, but we're debating if I want to put it out there because that one's kind of old now, but um, I don't know. I did it a long time ago. I did it in high school the first time, and I just, it kind of ran out, and I just kept doing it. I was doing it for myself. I was just doing it because I could actually do it. I thought it was cool, but people started asking me to do it, doing it and then I got to the minor leagues, and same thing, and when I got to the team, they asked me to stop doing it because, I mean, my legs were kind of valuable, and they asked me to stop, but, but I told them I, I would, but eventually I had to stop because, you know, things were starting to move, and Kansas City was just, it was fun, so I had a lot of friends that I actually knew in Kansas City at the time. I didn't know they lived there. I just saw them randomly one to dinner, and, you know, that's probably one of my favorite cities other than Boston. Now, listen, I'm going to transition into this because, you know, you're a guy that obviously, and of course we're speaking with Joe, uh, Major League Outfielder, this is John Pielli. Um, you know, you're, you're, a lot of your game is based on your legs, and it's been since you're in high school, since you got drafted, you know, throughout your time in the minors and the major leagues. You know, as you've gotten older, obviously your legs aren't what they were when you were 21, 22. Is there any big kind of changes that you have to make to your game when you're not able to go out there and steal, you know, 50, 60 bases in a season? Uh, I mean, for me, lately, what I've been doing, I've done to actually hit. You know, before I was just a slap hitter, that would do all the things I need to do in order to be like, I can't really give you a type of player because I think I'm a player, but yeah. just to be able to hit the ball to all fields, the ball in the gap, and all that stuff, before I couldn't do all that. And to do all those things now, it's just been tough to actually show it because the last few years I was in, in football and I get called up to play with Boston 
2010, 2011, but didn't get the chance to play because it was two playoff runs in 2010. Uh, a playoff run. So, you know, a guy like me coming from independent ball, it's tough for me to actually show what I've learned and what I've put into my game. But, like I said, it was tough to actually show it, but a lot of things have changed. I think I'm still not as fast, but just as I always take care of my legs because they are my most important things. But, yeah, you have to change a few things. You have to grow up a little bit and try to learn a little more and try to make sure you can keep up with the kids are getting bigger nowadays and they're younger and they're coming up quickly yeah no question man definitely no more jumping over cars right no i can still do it i just don't do it <laughs> yeah it's pretty good idea, man you just, just work just work on you know the rest the rest of your game which is you know gotten pretty good and listen man i you know hope to hope they can you know hopefully get to check you out you know in spring training this year i hope you end up latching on with somebody and that's all the best man thank you very much john and hey, no problem man take care man and that's uh, Joey Gathright, a uh, major league outfielder who's played for Tampa Bay, um, Cincinnati, Boston organizations over the last couple years. And, uh, you know, as usual, you know, like I always say, for having a couple minutes today, I appreciate him being part of the program. But, um, you know, listen, I mean, you're looking at a guy who right now is age 31, age 32 season. He, he's, not, he's not had himself a time where he could totally establish himself as an and you're looking at a guy that, you know, stolen 20 bases several times as a major leaguer with Tampa Bay and with Kansas City, a little bit with Chicago, a little bit with Boston. And, you know, that's really where his major league career has gone. But, you know, here's a guy that's gone gone out the independent ball. He's really, he's really gone out there to try to do everything that he needs to, to get back into the majors. And, you know, let's be honest, that's 132. That's no time to really hang it up. And, you know, hopefully we could hear in the news that he, he catches on with another team, can end up getting him back in the mix and, you know, uh, listen, good stuff there. But, um, you know, as I started to get into before about, you know, just kind of giving a tease of what the rest of the show is going to be. We're going to do a little bit about what's going on now, a little bit about what's went on with stuff, you know, in regards to uh, MLB and stuff like that. I do want to definitely break down the 27-36 Yankee thing because it's very interesting. But um, I'm going to get into what I wrote about today. And, and you know, if you're a New York Yankee fan, um, you'll sign free agent and uh, designated hitter Travis Hafner. And Hafner coming up to the, uh, you know, to the Yankees, giving them some power in their lineup. He's going to give them a guy that could DH, you know, maybe hit some home runs with a short porch at Yankee Stadium. But in order to had a clearer roster spot. And by doing so, they uh, designated outfielder, infielder, Russell assignment today. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a big move. It doesn't seem like it's a, it's something that's important or even maybe worth talking about. But Kanzler is a guy who has been DFA'd now four times this offseason. You know, he's originally from the Cleveland Indy, needed to clear a roster spot up, so they DFA'd him. He was picked up on waivers by the Toronto Blue Jays. They DFA'd him. He was picked up again. They DFA'd him. Then he was picked up by the Yankees. And, of course, yesterday he was DFA'd by the Yankees. In my opinion, I think a guy that, you know, is, is in a bunch of different spots because there's a demand for him. He's, he's, a, he's a guy with power. He could, he's, I think he's a major league caliber type of player. He's a guy that could go on there. If he's on your 40-man roster, you could use him as a pinch hitter. If he's in the American League, as a DH or, you know, an extra outfielder in the National League. And here's a guy that can really help a lot of teams. And that's why he doesn't last on waivers. He doesn't clear waivers like a Nick Evans did with the Mets, you know, all those times in the 11th season. And I think you look at that, that's something that I, I think draws me as a fan or as, as an fan to say that I think the Mets 
should go out there and claim this guy. I mean, here's a guy who has had some good numbers throughout his minor league career, playing for a lot of different teams, the Chicago organization, the Cubs in uh, 2000. You know, he did very well. 2011, he was with the Tampa Bay system where he ends up hitting 20 home runs last year with the Indians. Here's a guy that, you know, strikes out a little bit but does provide some good power. He's a guy that doubles, hits some home runs. And if I'm the New York Mets where I don't have a single outfielder that's major league caliber right now, Mets, I, in my opinion, have done a little more lately by bringing in players that can compete for jobs, such as an Andrew Brown, Dylan Bird, guys like that, you know, Colin Calgill, who they traded for, guys that can go in there and maybe make a case to be in every But nobody stands out. And I think uh, Russ Kanzler will be another guy that you could throw in there, add to the mix. And I think, in my opinion, he's a guy that could end up getting, uh, you know, perhaps winning a starting job. And, and I know in my blog, and I'm gonna pretty much going to paraphrase the whole blog here by what I'm saying, you know, you know, fan, fans get so caught up in the defensive metrics thing. And that, and I think that, that kind of drives me crazy because, you know, you're talking about players, you know, you're talking about – you know, when you're in regards to the New York Mets at the right now, and they don't they don't have the ability, they don't have uh, players that you could say, hey, this guy is definitely starting right now. Lucas Duda, Kirk Newenheis, and Mike Baxter, they could all be challenged by many other major league teams, and the question could be asked, how many other major league teams would they be starting played for? Maybe the Miami Marlins, maybe one of those guys would be in there. Remember, they got Lomo and and even Justin Reggiano, who could probably play over all three of them. You know, you got a team like Houston that's young yet. You know, a team like perhaps, uh, you know, you look at a couple other teams out there. Maybe, um, I don't know, San Diego. You can't really think of too many options where the current Mets outfield, as constructed, the three guys that I just mentioned, be out there and would be everyday players. And that's that's kind of one of those things that would frustrate me. Because, you know, in a situation like that, when you don't have guys that are proven, when you don't have guys that – Oh, have a track record, and without a doubt, should be regular players, then you want competition. And unfortunately, some fans kind of go the other way when they say, I want competition. I, I, I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dissect and micromanage and friggin' overanalyze every, every player that they could possibly bring in and maybe make a case why they shouldn't be here. Well, if you're going to do that, then why don't you the three guys that are your your contemporaries, you know, your incumbents to be your outfielders? Because Mike Baxter has a ton of holes. Why don't you th go throw him in a shredder. Why don't you go analyze him and mic micromanage and dissect every little thing that he does right and doesn't do right, and then you'll make a case why he shouldn't be a major league outfielder. I just get tired of hearing every time another name is, oh, I don't want that guy. But, you know, the bottom line is you're going to beat something when you're lacking quality is quantity. And, you know, a guy like Russ can give you more quantity and give you more of an opportunity that one of these guys that you have in the mix are going to close. And that's one thing that, that, that just has to happen. And I think, you know, the Mets pull of uh, 39 and 40 roster guys that they could easily take off the roster and bring back on a minor league deal. And I think that would open up a spot for Russ Kanzler who can go out there and hit for a major league team. And how many guys in the Mets outfield do you feel confident about? Yes, Lucas Duda probably can, even in a bad season, hit 20 home runs for you. Kirk Newenheis can't. Baxter can't. Colin in the minor leagues probably showed you as a guy that may max out at about 15 home runs if he's playing absolutely perfect and all the time. But there's, there's nobody that fills that need. And Sandy Alderson has gone out there saying that he does want power in his It's one of the things that he looks for. The chicks dig the long ball, the whole thing. He's, he, want, he wants some power hitters in the lineup. 
you know, the infield, which looks okay, you know, with like Davis and Wright, man in the corners, and Murphy and Tejada in the middle. You have a catcher that, listen, everybody is all gung-ho about thinking that Travis Darno is going to be the next Mike Piazza. And I'm, I'm not ready to see it yet. I'm not looking at it that way. I don't think it's a guarantee. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, even if that's the case, you're not going to take a month or two of the season. So when you're looking for power in a lineup and you're talking about addressing an outfit that obviously has not been addressed, you have to keep throwing players out there. you got to keep adding to the quantity of competing for the three jobs in the outfield. And you cannot guarantee one job in the Mets outfield to Luke Heiss or Mike Baxter. If they go out there and they prove it, if they go out there and have a dominant spring, if they look like that they've Maybe they've used some HGH or something, you know, whatever whatever chemicals are going through the system. And obviously, we're going to get into a lot of the steroid rod stuff, all of that in a little bit. But if they get themselves in a position where they prove, you know, that they could be a solid major league outfielder, then let them earn it. But don't don't just give them the job. You also have to factor in the fact that any one of these guys could get hurt, even if they're on fire. Luke out there on pace for 40 home runs and then be out for the season, and then you don't have anybody to replace them. Sandy Alderson uses the time between now and when pitchers catchers report nine days and when games start within about so and the World Baseball Classic, you know, rears its head, goes, comes, goes, and then all the players in, in Major League Camp to continue to bring players in. And, you know, if, if they are deals or, you know, you have to accept it. And as a Met fan, you have to accept that the big free agent signing isn't coming. Mike Bourne's not going to end up here. Josh Hamilton you know, after after taking that uh, reasonable offer, Sandy Alderson offered him to come to the New York Mets, chose the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. All those things have to be factored in, and I think that, you know, it's a situation where you're bringing in a lot of players. You know, I, I've, I've remembered, you know, from being a Mets fan all these years, there's all these different types of players that you've seen in in uh, spring training come and end up never playing a game in the major leagues. And two players that stand out to me, one guy – is a former outfielder, Terry Poole. And Terry Poole, uh, if you know, you know, if you're about my age, you would remember Terry as being a guy that was kind of a pinch hitter, fourth outfielder type, type of guy that's going to play in 100 games but not going to play every day. Go back a little further, you'll realize that Terry Poole was a starting center fielder at the Houston Astros in the late 70s, early 80s. One thing, one thing that was going on at that time is the Houston Astros were a good team. Of course, we all remember about them in '86 and the whole game series with the Mets, the you know the the, the extra inning game, you know Jesse Orozco throwing the glove in the air, the whole thing. You know the Astros of the late '70s and early '80s with J.R. Richard and eventually Nolan Ryan, that had a very good team. And Terry Poole's their starting center fielder, a guy that went out there played every day. You know, wasn't wasn't had a little bit of speed, a little bit of, a little bit of power. Was known for his defense. And the Mets, I believe this is the 19, ended up signing him to a minor league contract with an invite to spring training. And once that happened, you know, he, he went out, thing, he gave it all he's got, and then you realize at the end of spring training he wasn't good enough to make the team. So what, the Mets end up cutting him, he retires, he moves on. Another guy more recent that I'm sure a lot more men remember was Andres Galarraga. And Andres Galarraga, obviously the, the huge years he had, Colorado Rockies and the Atlanta Braves, Ended up coming to the Mets, probably in a position where they couldn't promise him an everyday job if he earned it. But he went out there pretty much as a last kind of calling card. He wanted to, you know, clear his major league career. And, you know, he lasted about three weeks in spring training, ends up retiring, saying, listen, I don't I don't think I could. 
But you're going to have to go through players like that. And, and my, my whole point of this is the fact that people get themselves frustrated and caught up into, in silly things. Because they, they look at the whole thing and the, the Will Ponds and Sandy Alderson keeping the money down and stuff like that. And saying, hey, how are you going to spend money? You're going to spend money. Why, why are you going to spend money on players that might not be on your team? And, you know, a guy on Twitter and, you know, he, he ended up being on the same page afterwards. But, you know, he, he was mentioning the fact that, you know, Pedro Feliciano, Tim Burdak, Bird, you know, everybody else that the Mets have signed to minor league contracts, the major league types of players with the new collective bargaining would have to be paid $100,000 if they didn't make the, the uh, team out of spring training and had to go down the tr- And I threw in the only, uh, the only other caveat to it was you could release them. Good enough, then they'll be on the team. If they're not good enough to make the team, you release them. So last off season really didn't even go out there and sign minor league free agents, you know, hoping for that, you know, the guy something left, the veteran that, you know, was really bad for years and all of a sudden puts it together injured and is just looking for one last hurrah, you know, you end up, you know, they end up really bringing nothing in here. And I'm just hoping over the next couple of weeks that you'll see more guys ink to minor league contracts for reason only that if they're just not good enough, you release them and you move on. And those are the things that, those are the things, you know, if you have a team that doesn't have the financial capability of putting major league players in places, major league players, then you're going to have to go through other avenues to bring in talent. And listen, some talent might be a You might bring in a guy like Marlon Bird who might be a waste of time bringing a spring training. You might realize that in two days, two weeks, or by the end of spring training. But the bottom line is you take a look at him because what if he does? This is a guy that went out there and in winter ball was actually tearing a cover off the baseball. He's hitting home. You know, he's, he had, he, yeah, he, he had the, the whole uh, PED thing this last year. Served his 50 games. He's still using. And to be honest, and I'll get into this early, later when I'm talking about the steroid things, I don't care. Just just go out there and play the game. This guy has something left that maybe there is a spot on the Major League roster for him. But you know what? You're never going to know unless you bring the guy in. The Mets should continue to build on this whole quantity thing because they absolutely did not do that last offseason. And, you know, silly things that were said during the season about the Mets' good start and the whole depth thing and, you know, the Omar of the world and, the you know, the guys that came in and were, you know, you know Vinny Rotino, you know, would all play a little bit of a role be honest they all weren't that great you know these weren't these weren't superstar players and and they lucked out on a couple that contributed for a little bit of time and my whole purpose of this talking we can make it even more you can make it even a bigger chance you know if you're talking about two players that are in there on minor league contract contributing a little bit at the major league level if you increase that by you know to five or seven or eight then you know, obviously, there'll be more players getting cut at the end of spring training, more more that don't get the job done, they can't do it, that you're just like, all right, time to cut bait with. But the better, the, I, in my opinion, you know, the logic will say that there's a better chance that these <laughs> you're going to get more players that are going to be able to contribute something. The Mets are looking at for the next 50 home run hitter on the free agent market right now. They're not looking for the next, you know, five years, four years of major league ability and is going to sign the next, you know, R.A. Dickey contract. Yes, you'd always like to have that. You'd like to have the story, the guy that goes in there in spring training. He's the first one cut. He goes down to the minor leagues. He ends up, you know, owning his career and wins a Cy Young. That's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, dude. That's not going to happen all the time. But my, you keep bringing in players that are in that same kind of boat, your opportunity, the, the whole 
purpose of the thing is to get players that are going to contribute at the major league. And I hope that we, we see a couple more outfielders come in, you know, in regards to the New York Mets. And we've talked, we've talked before about trades. You know, what are you going to do trade-wise? Uh, and I'm sure Sandy Alderson has gone out there. He's talked to other generals about certain players. Probably does have a limit or something when in regards to kind of, uh, you know, what, what he's interested in giving up. You know, he went out there. He got kind of a trade for Jeffrey Marte. And Jeffrey Marte is a very good third-base prospect. I saw him play in uh, – Binghamton this past season. He's got some power, but you know his path is blocked with the extension to David Wright. I, I don't change in positions. He's a guy that was probably due time to be on a 40-man roster, and the Mets decided to trade him to Oakland. He's a third baseman and get Colin Cowgill, who was a pretty good prospect in himself when he played for the Arizona Diamondbacks. I think it was a good trade. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the, the you know the thing we're going to talk about all season. Oh man, I can't believe they got this guy. He's great. He's awesome. It happened, but. I think they could make another trade like that. And in my opinion, the best trading partner was the Seattle Mariners. The Seattle Mariners have gone out there. They're obviously known through the Twitter world as number six. You know, the team that's just going to go out there and, you know, pretty much take what everybody else don't want, make a little more money than what you want to. It, I think it all started with the whole Adrian Beltre sign. And, you know, listen, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to question Adrian Beltre as not being one of the top third basemen, if not the best in Major League Baseball right now. But he wasn't with the Seattle Mariners. And they went out there and they got Sean Figgins and they got, you know, they a bunch of, a bunch of moves that ended up not working out. They took Jason Bay off the Mets' hands. They... They, uh, you know, they ended up Solanez based off of his postseason last year. You know, they traded for Michael Morse. You know, some of these moves are good, some of these ain't. But the have in common is the fact that they have created so much depth, so many plays for such few spots in the outfield, first base, and DH, and that frees up frees up some younger guys. Two players that I would have my eyes set on if I was the New York Mets and Sandy Alderson, Franklin Gutierrez who I, I spoke about before, and Casper Wells. Casper Wells came over in a trade from Detroit a couple of years ago, has an ability to be a center fielder. I don't know if he's 100% a major league guy, an everyday type of player, but he's a guy worth taking a chance on. And when you don't really have a center fielder, which the Mets do not have, Casper Wells has the ability to go out there and be a major league center fielder. And I think Franklin Gutierrez fits the bill too, and I'll talk about him in a second. Casper Wells came over... Um, in a trade with the, the, the um, Detroit Tigers in 2011. This past season, 28, 10 homers, 36 RBIs in 93 games for the Mariners, played all three outfield positions. But he can play center field. He played mostly in right for the Mariners, but he's a guy that does move around a little bit. And he was involved in that trade. Um, you know, involved Doug Fister and Charlie Furbush. And, and Here's a guy that probably isn't going to cost you that much. I mean, are you talking prospect at tops? Maybe even some lower-level guys if you got the, you know, the Seattle Mariners saying, listen, maybe we could strengthen our farm system in the distant future. Maybe you, get a, maybe you get rid of a couple guys that you just don't really know about. I mean, to me, I think that would work out. And you bring a guy in like Casper Wells who could hit some home runs a little bit. He's not a he's not an extreme base stealing type of guy. But, you know, he's got some power. He can hit some doubles, hit some home runs. And, you know, bats right-handed. And I think that a, a guy that can end up helping the team. And here, here's a guy that I th if, if he was on this team, he would be, without a doubt, a, a fourth out. Or a guy that can go out there and play every day. 
And I think that's a situation where I th- they, they should, you know, as far as Casper Wells is concerned, he's a guy that I think can really help out. And I, and I think you could get him cheap, probably even cheaper than you could get Franklin Gutierrez out of. And I think if you looked at Franklin Gutierrez, he's a very good defensive center fielder. He's a guy that's going to make the spectacular play. When you're talking about young pitching and stuff, he's obviously an asset to a young pitching staff. And remember in 2009, he went out there, hit 283, 18 home guys as an everyday center fielder. If he could go out and duplicate numbers like that, then then you'd be set. But the thing with him over the last couple seasons, his reckless play, the way he goes out there, the Aaron Rowan type, um, is going to go out there and give everything he's got. He's going to he's going to you know leave himself susceptible. He played in just 40 games this past season. I think his game is getting a little bit a bit better. 2010, he hit just five. You know, in his last full season, 152 games, 12 homers, 64 RBIs, 25 steals, 137 strikes. But here's a guy that you know is entering his age 30 season. And in my opinion, you're looking at a guy that probably has something left, probably has about three or four more years of playing center field on an everyday basis. You know, you're talking about the New York Mets who have a Matt Dendecker maybe in waiting. I don't know how good he is. You know, from when I watched him play in Binghamton over the last couple of seasons, he looks very good. But, you know, Brandon Nimmo, who is two, three, four years away maybe. You know, you could get a guy to pull patrol center field and not necessarily to uh, – to, 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 to kill people. I mean, you're, you're looking at a guy that's not going to, you know, up ridiculous type of numbers. And, and I think it's a situation that you have to look at when you're, when you're analyzing the, your outfield is going to be. And we're going to move right on here. And uh, what, what I did, when I, I was talking about it before, I kind of teased it a little bit at the top of the program, is the 1927 New York Yankees reputation of being this dominant, you know, no whole greatest team ever assembled. And while that argument is not silly, it's very good. You know, you're looking at probably the best seasons that were ever had by two teammates in the history of Major League Baseball. I think that's one thing that gets lost in them. You realize that Lou Gehrig on the 1927 Yankees hit 373, 47 homers, 175 RBs, 49 runs scored, 218 hits, 52 doubles, 18 triples, slug 765 OPS. 1.240, which is ridiculous. And you back that up with Babe Ruth. And, of course, Babe Ruth, the classic, 60 home runs. The first player to ever hit 60 home runs in a season. Obviously a record that stood until 1961. Roger Maris came over and hit the 61. But his season was was almost as unfathomable. He hit 356 that year. 60 homers, 164 RBIs, 158 runs scored, 190. You know, 137 walks. Obviously, nobody wanted to freaking face him. Slug 7 PS 1.258. So those two players made the 27 Yankees what they were. And you look at other players on that team, of course, Tony Lazari, the Hall of Famer, you know, was the second baseman, hit 309-1802. You know, very good season there. And the only other guy who drove in 100 runs on that team was was Bob Musial, who went out 337, eight homers, 103 runs batted in. Uh, Early Combs. Hit 356, six homers, 64, 137 runs scored, 231 hits, 36 doubles, 23 triples that season. And remember, 27 Yankees, you're talking about 1927, where triples were still a big part of the game. The power hitters, the best hitters in the game, the guys who would go out there and hit 30, 40 home runs would also get a lot of. That's not the case now. You got the home run or nothing guys, the guys that just want to stand at the plate, hit the ball either 500 feet or swing and miss. It's there. 
you know, the amount of players that got, you know, the amount of power hitters that got inside the park home run was was more prominent than it than it than it ever was. And that's why you see, you know, Luke seven home runs, but eighteen triples. And I think that, you know, you're you're looking at the team, listen, that is one of the greatest set of offensive teams in the history of Major League Baseball. But one team that I think gets overlooked sometimes is is the nineteen thirty six version. The nineteenth team which, of course, didn't have Babe Ruth there anymore. But in my opinion, not having Babe Ruth allowed so many more team to contribute and be part of the mix. And I think that has to be looked at because you're looking at, you know, no Babe Ruth, you know, Ruth for DiMaggio swap probably would not be fair. And remember, Joe DiMaggio in 19 was just a rookie. His first season, he came out there. He was obviously, you know, a rookie, which I think deserves a lot of credit. He went out there, he hit... 323, hit 29 homers, drove in 125 runs, 132 runs scored, six hits, 44 doubles, 15 triples. So, you know, if you're going to put DiMaggio of 30, Ruth of 27, it's not a fair comparison. But having a guy like DiMaggio who didn't take the sole representation of doing everything himself, he, he was a, more of a, you had a guy like George Selkirk who went out there, hit 308, 18 homers, 107 RBIs in the same outfield. Red Rolf, who played third base, drove in 70 runs, hit 319. Frankie Crisetti, 288, drove in 78 runs. Lazari, you know, still on the team from the 27 team, 287, 14 homers, hard guys. And oh yeah, Lou Gehrig was still playing. And Lou Gehrig, honestly, if you ever you ever get a chance on Baseball.com, pull up Lou Gehrig's stats. I mean, they are they're just borderline scary. Guy to have as much power as he did. He 493 home runs in his career that ended up short. Uh, and he's obviously known for the, being the Iron Man, the consecutive game streak, the whole thing. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And, of course, dying of a, of a disease that was put in his own name. I'm joking, joking, joking. But, you know, here's a guy that was one of the greatest hitters to ever hit in this game. A, a, you know, a guy that goes can go out there and hit 350 at age 33. 49 homers, 152 RBIs, 167 runs scored. Two hits. You know, it's phenomenal. He OPS 1.174 that year. We're talking about, what, nine years after a 27 team? He was just as good. He, he had Lou Gehrig as a staple on both teams, so it's, it's not a bad base to start off at. But one thing they didn't have in 1927 was a catcher like Bill Dickey. Hall of Fame catcher, a guy who hit 362. In 1936, at age 29, 22 homers, 107 RBIs, 99 runs. I mean, I mean, you look at the amount of players that contributed on the 1936 Yankees, and I will make the case, and you know, hopefully, baseball historians will feel the same way, that the 36 team offensively is better than that Murderers Row 2017. The 2017 was very top heavy with Garrick, but didn't have as much as what the 36 team had. The 36 team had Garrick, obviously a rookie named him, but they also had, you know, and both teams had Lazari. But the 36 team had Dickey, George Selkirk, Red Rolf, Frankie Crisetti, who were guys that could produce, drive in runs, score runs. I mean, Frankie, 137 runs that year. And he was what? The, the sixth option? If you look at the, you know, based on, uh, you know, runs batted in, batting average, stuff like that, he, he was probably the sixth best player in that lineup. Rolf was probably the seventh best player in that lineup. Hit 319, 10 over 70 RBIs, 116 runs scored, 181. 
39 doubles, 15 triples. And that's your seventh best player in an eight-man lineup. The guy that kind of stands out as not being a major contributor. And that's not his own fault. In 87 games, and that was Jake Powell. You know, the last outfield spot. You know, a guy like and some other guys. Ben Chapman, who uh, Joe DiMaggio ended up taking over for when he came up in the 30th. You know, was kind of a role player there. So they had one outfield spot, the whatever would be the lineup that was just kind of rotated out. And if you look at it that way, let's be honest, dude, that team is better than Murderers Row. And you may agree with me, not agree with me, but listen, I, I think the numbers back it up. They absolutely do. Once again, it's the past ball show, giving you a special Saturday afternoon edition as we move into the clock hour. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna stay on for a little bit. Um, and we're hoping to maybe get a hold of. Not we're gonna continue with some uh, baseball discussion. Um, we're gonna get into a little bit about the the report that came out this past week. You know, involved Miami anti aging clinic and all the all the names of the players involved. Obviously, Alex, because he's Alex Rodriguez, is gonna stand out and get more notice in his story. He's gonna get more. There's going to be more back pages about him, obviously, in New York because he's, he's a guy that plays for a New York team, but also because he's out. He's the page six guy. He's the guy that people are always going to go out there and want to get the scoop, the gossip, the slander, the whole thing. And obviously his name becomes the uh, gets put to the forefront of this whole conversation. How many times he's mentioned his name's on prescription bottles. There's records of, of uh and everything that's involved, and you know, he goes out there, he hires the uh, the the lawyer of uh, I believe it's uh, I don't know Joe Black or something like that, and he goes out there and he, he's himself with some of the best you know legal representation that could be out there, and you think about Alex Rodriguez, and you want to get into the whole thing about you know his hundred fourteen million dollar contract that he's owed over the five seasons, and the fact that he's he's got that hip surgery, he's going to miss at least a very good portion of the two thousand thirteen season. And, you know, what do the Yankees do? I mean, they're stuck. They got to pay $25 million over the next five seasons every year, whether this guy's on their team or not. So fan guys, everybody involved is going to try to come up with some conspiracy theories or ways that they could get rid of this. Let's be honest. It's just not going to happen. The Yankees signed Alex Rodriguez to a 10-year contract after the 2000. He is going to be a New York Yankee until 2017, unless he decides to retire on his own. And if you followed Alex Rodriguez since he first stepped on a major league field, even before that when he was taken as the number one overall pick by the Seattle Mariners, there's one thing about him. He's a very prideful and selfish person that he cares, number one, about Alex Rodriguez and very little about anybody else. So anybody that thinks that he's going to voluntarily for the best of his team, for the best of the game. It's just not he's gonna go out there and he's probably gonna try every way he can to go out there and play. And if appearance this year, it may be a surprise, particularly if he's faced with a fifty game suspension, which Major League Baseball can under the collective bargaining agreement, if there's enough circumstantial evidence that it makes it to where there's a that a, that a player used or was in possession of a performance enhancement, then it could be suspended. It's not all about a failed drug test. You know, just ask, you know, some players that, that have gone that way. Jacobs, you know, first player and only player up to this point to uh, fail an HGH test, to, to uh, be using just HGH and be suspended for it. Because 
Baseball doesn't test for it. Baseball's first GH this year, coming into the 2013 season, during the season. But that was before because they weren't drawing blood. They were drawing hair, hair and urine and stuff like that. It doesn't turn up in that. It's going to turn out in just blood tests. But there was enough circumstantial evidence that showed was in was in possession or was prescribed prescriptions for HGH. And that's how he was the games. And you're going to see players that are going to get suspended. And I'm curious to see how this, this whole thing turns out. Not just what it is, but the other players involved. Because there were some other high-profile names in this case. You're talking about Gio Gonzalez. You're talking uh, Nelson Cruz. Two guys that have never been linked to anything before. And then, of course, you got guys, the you know, the players that are always in, that that have a lot of uh, experience being involved in cases like this, like Melky Cabrera and Bartolo and Yasmin Grandel, who have all been suspended for 50 games before. So, if if this investigation ends up rearing its head and they end up doing what they need to do, you're looking at a guy that uh, you know that you know guys that could be suspended for 100 games, and then the other three and maybe more players suspended for 50 games. So that I a very good sign for Major League Baseball when it comes to trying to get into the whole HGH thing and obviously blood test and all the players, in my opinion, that are going to fail this coming season. And I think you add all that together, that spells a lot. That spells a, you know, a big step in the in the process of ridding themselves of performing substances. And you know, listen, have having up to this point, I, I don't think they've done the best job that they could. And, you know, we've talked about all the time of what my opinion is on it, whether I feel like it's it's such a scar to the game. Players are using performance-enhancing substances. And listen, I mean, I don't want to rub anybody in the wrong way, but I, I don't care about it. I really don't. I just go out there to watch the games. I want to watch these guys play. I mean, I mean, should people care more about the fact that Cobb was an absolute jerk? I mean, I mean, does that matter more than watching him on the field when he was one of the greatest players in this game? I mean, you look at Gaylord Perry and what he did over the course of his career. He was a known spitball pitcher, you know, you know, you know, enhancing the the, the performance of a baseball or the, the baseball is illegal. You're not supposed to doctor it. You're not supposed to put chips in the ball or rub Vaseline on the ball. You're not supposed to use whatever it is that you got. You know, you're not supposed to have a friggin' filer to to uh, you know in, enhance the movement of a baseball. That's illegal. That's against the rules of the game. So. You've you've been in a in an era in a, in a game that's been around for well over 150 years, that players are doing everything an advantage, and and the fact that they've done it to this point, I mean I mean I don't I don't think the fact that steroids should be made as big of a deal as it is, because you, because the people that are the biggest you know anti steroid can't even trace back the origin to it, they can't say that steroids didn't exist year. What's to say that they didn't exist in 1970 or even earlier? They have no record to prove either way. Any type of drug testing at all. I mean, they cared in the 80s. They cared more about players using cocaine than they did when, you know, Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco would show up for spring training twice the size that they were last year. But they cared if, you know, Keith Hernandez went out there and blew the night before. So, so to me, when, when we're talking about the purity of the game, the purity of Major League Baseball was never protected. Nobody cared about the purity of the game. Nobody cared about any of the spitballers. You know, nobody cared about Ken Caminiti winning the MVP, and, and then, you know, unfortunately and sadly, 
dying a couple years later because of steroids abuse. But you care about it now. And you care now because it's taking the mainstream media. It's taking over. You hear about it every day. Whether it's MLB Network, on the radio, whatever whatever you're trying to get your baseball knowledge and opinion about, it, you're just hearing about it too much. My my opinion is the focus should be on the game. Let these let the you know maybe what they've collectively bargained to, the the drug policies. Obviously, it's working to some extent because players are failing drugs right. You know, you want to raid a couple more anti aging clinics. I don't care. Do whatever you got to do. And and if if you're that serious about eliminating steroids and performance enhancing drugs in a game, then go all in. Let's see ten players on each team that are all suspended time. You know, if they're all using HGH, I I, I want I want to see all these players not playing, and see what it does for the game. And then you look you'll look at you know all star teams that consist of players hitting about two twenty and will be out of the game years. And then you say, hey, I kind of missed the stars. I kind of missed the action. I kind of missed watching what Major League Baseball was back then. And that's what I love about the game. I could care less if a player is friggin' shooting up right before they come up to bat or a player goes to the clubhouse before he's out to pitch and, you know, injects himself in the ass with some steroids. It's none of my business. I'm over there. I'm out there to watch my team win. I'm out to watch the balance of the game. If, if I'm a Mets fan, I'm out, I'm out there wanting the Mets to win as many games as possible. As a major league fan, if I'm watching a, a game between the, the St. Louis Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Pirates, I, I want a good game. I want something to watch. I care what kind of substances the players are using. Because the players don't care. The players cared since the game officially started. Since the first game, whether it was 1861 or before, cared about what the players were doing or what they were using. And, and they show it now. Because what, what is the major focus or important or integral part of what a player is trying to do right now that wants to use performance-enhancing drugs? They just don't want to get caught. So if Major League Baseball or any analyst is going to go to you that Major League Baseball has gotten to the root of the steroids and performance-enhancing drug issue, they're wrong. Because half of the players that are using, like Ryan Braun, and he gets off on a technicality. Are you telling me that Ryan Braun, who had the same exact season that he had in 2011 and 2012, you don't think, you think he did that one clean? I, I'd be really surprised if he did. But you know what he got over? You know what he got to a point that you're not going to be able to pick up? Whatever his track, whatever his trail was, wherever his footprints were, was not picked up by baseball. He found a chemist who had a chemical detected in a drug test. And that's what most of the players are doing right now. Big T's. He's one of my one of my favorite players to watch. The designated hitter to ever play in Major League Baseball. Apparently came out that he that he was on the 2003 list. Would totally baffle you and surprise you and shock you if you found out that he's been using performance enhancing drugs. It wouldn't. I don't care. My whole point is that I, it, it doesn't matter to me. It might matter to you, you know, the outsider that's looking at it, trying to manage a professional athlete to make whatever job you do seem like it's better than what they do for a living and get paid a lot of money for. But to me as a baseball fan, it doesn't matter. Because you're at the root of the whole thing.
the chemists are always ahead of you. There, there's people that have ridiculous educations, have gone to the greatest medical and, and you know, you know, schools that, that are out there in the country and are designing their own chemicals as we speak. And they, and, they, and they understand. They know the laws of Major League Baseball. They know the drug testing policy in it. That's why you That's why you got stuff like that. You know, Ray Lewis, whether he used or didn't use deer, deer antler spray to, to speed up his process coming back. You know, you got for MP, you know, Manny Ramirez failing for, you know, a fertility drug that, you know, that's used to, to increase fertility for a woman. You know, the chemists are studying this stuff, and they're always ahead and it's not just a little bit ahead they're all they're they're far ahead and you think the highest paid players that have been using for for the whole the whole time have the money to invest to have the best drugs to have the least detectable drugs so unless you're going to explain to me how all of that is going to be resolved i gotta be honest i don't care and you know what? A lot of fans, baseball fans, probably shouldn't care. Because if you if you tell me that you care and you want to go out there and make this big rant about how steroids got to be eliminated from the game, no more HGH, no poor performance, you're going to come out as a hypocrite somewhere. You are. Because there's other things that have been done in the game that have been illegal. Illegal to baseball, illegal when we're talking about the law. That have been done for hundreds, for 150. You know, you talk about, you know, the people that are getting probably hurt the most are the ones that get involved in gambling. Anybody that does is, is foolish because of what happened in 1919 and the Black Sox scandal and the whole thing that, you know, there was, there were no rules until 1919 or until Commissioner Kenneshaw Mountain Landis came in and ended up absolutely a capital major league crime to bet on the game. And a guy like Pete Rose, unfortunately made, made the mistake to involve himself with that. And he, he will never be in a hall of fame, at least while he's living. Maybe, maybe after he dies, he will fame years later. But that, that's the thing that has been the capital baseball, not steroids, not, you know, a, a corked bat, which has been used by many players, many great players, used a cork bat over the course of their entire career. So you're going to tell me you you can't do steroids, or people that use steroids are an embarrassment. But who cares about the guy that used the cork bat? He had he had an event. The extra pop that's added to the bat's going to make the ball go farther when you hit it. You know, and and obviously Mike Scott was not a Hall of Fame, but Mike Scott. And the 1986 Houston Astros, Cy Young, the no hitter, the the two two uh, two complete games in the NLCS, is is he going to want to give it back? The fact that he scuffed the baseball, the fact that he had the grooves and the ridges in it that he could make the ball drop like it did, that was an unfair advantage. But nobody cares about that. You just want to go after people that are uh, that are using needles, and they're only hurting themselves. They're only hurting themselves. But listen, man, we're going to take a little bit of a of little, little uh, need a drink. So get back a little more here right on TMTR Radio now. 